0: You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural
1: skills, passions, and interests. Now, here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hello, everyone. This is Dirk Novell on with me as a friend, Reed Cooter. Reed, welcome. Thanks, Dirk. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, so Reed, I have not had anybody in the physical therapy uh, industry or world yet. So I'm excited because, you know, back in the day when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, this was one of the things I thought about. Um, so Reed is a friend of mine I've known for years, a client, uh, mutual friends. And, you know, a lot of the people I know in my community actually go to Reed for for help. So he is legit he is very good at what he does and why don't you kind of in your own words explain what you do how long you've been in it um how you got into it and we'll kind of just take it from there sure
0: yeah i uh i'm the owner of phoenix physical therapy and personal wellness uh i've opened this practice about eight years ago now uh prior to that was the clinic director and founding therapist of the Proliant surgeons group up in the highlands here in issaquah uh, and prior to that worked for a couple different national companies as a clinic director uh, fairly soon out of pt school uh, my first job was uh, at a clinic in kirkland that was affiliated with the seahawks athletic trainer at the time which was a really cool place to learn kind of high-end athletic stuff uh, just kind of morphed my career more into management and uh and still do uh 40 hours of clinical care at the same time. So uh, kind of got into the profession. Uh, when I was in high school, I think like everybody, there's some sort of pivotal moment where you're exposed to something. Uh, and my twin sister uh, tore her ACL their, her senior year of basketball and uh, had to do physical therapy first to play before she had surgery. And uh, her therapist, frankly, was not that motivating. So she asked me to go into her session one time and just kind of try to get her to passed this kind of, it was a kincom test at the time, but uh, kind of an old way that we used to test people's strength and, you know, just stood there and try to motivate her uh, instead of her therapist who was over there drinking a cup of coffee in the corner. And uh, she ended up passing to go back and play that last bit of her senior year and kind of had that that ability to return, right? So we, have th- we were both exposed to the profession at the same time, kind of in that really important critical period, right? And so we're both physical therapists, as, as it turns out. She's gone more into academia. She's a professor with Central Michigan's program, and I uh, continue to do more of the the professional side so and now kind of balance that business owner therapist hat at the same time I love it
1: so interesting was the why then you saw a situation where maybe the person in recovery mode wasn't getting taken care of the way they should be and you're like you know what I want to fix that or I want to be I want to be the answer to that.
0: Yep, I, I thought I could do it better, uh, at least do it better than than what she experienced. And then when you start looking into the profession, if you wanna work in Wyoming with dancers, you can. If you wanna work in Seattle with athletes or New York City with dancers, there's just so much opportunity geographically and then uh, the demographics of the patient that you work with, it was just really enticing to have that that mix of opportunity. So
1: so you, you were locked in at an early age.
0: I was, yeah, senior year, I kinda knew what I wanted to do and I went right to it,
1: right? Um, I, I love it, you know, because a lot of folks don't, don't, and, you know, I'm 53, and I've I've had a couple of career changes, and sometimes it takes a years of experience, but for you, it sounds like it it happened early. So, I know you went to, was it University of Puget Sound for your master's? Correct. Yep, yep. And then prior to that, what was your college? Went to Grand Valley
0: State University in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan for my undergrad, which is in biopsychology, Okay. Uh, which I think is critical if you're going to work with people to have some sort of a psychology background. So that was, it was a nice degree to kind of mix in the biologies and the, and the psychologies together. So.
1: I love it. Yeah. I actually went back to psychology school after technology It's another story, but I, I think psychology plays a part in everything. That's I, um, so I'm curious. So the reason I asked that is, so if someone's interested in is PT the, the way kind of the, the jargon, the ac- acronym yep. that people, yep. okay. So is that something you can knock out in your undergrad or do you have to go get a master's?
0: Uh, Well, now it's a doctorate. So I'm kind of old school, sitting with my master's still. So now all programs have switched over to a doctorate program. And so there are some schools that'll fast track, like you can take your undergrad uh, for the first three years, and there's a a transition year where you're still taking undergrad courses, but you're in your first year of PT school. Uh, Most folks are going to go through a four-year degree program and then apply to PT school, which is a three-year program. Uh, Most schools kind of it's year round for those three years. Some schools still have the summers off, but you do come out with a doctorate now. So uh, but it's it, seven years is kind of the the track for most people.
1: So seven, is that based off of taking the right classes in your four year undergrad? Or can you, let's just say you were economics and then you're like, oh, I wanna to go to PT school. Can you get it done in three years or do you have to extend yeah. that?
0: Yeah, if you, if you have a degree in something you just have to go back and get those prerequisites that you may have missed. So to your point in my uh, PT class, there were 30 of us and uh, we had one woman who was a music major. And decided that she really wanted to go into PT. So she had to backtrack and get some of the sciences that she didn't get in her undergrad. Um, but yeah, you certainly can. It's and there's just, you know, a handful of things like chemistry, biology, physics, statistics, probably for her, um, that you're gonna normally take through some of those uh kind of pre-med type coursework on your way to PT for most people. But
1: so you know, you're you you're talking a lot about different skill sets. And in my I've had experience with injuries and so. I know I'm going to probably not say this the right way, but you know, you have to know the body. Of course you have to know people, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of things you have to have in your arsenal to to be good at what you do. What are like three or the four of the most important, like, is it the obvious of just knowing how the body works?
0: Yeah. And I think there's even, you can dive deeper into that answer. Uh, For my profession, I'm in orthopedics. So I I work with, you know, athletes, people that just want to walk better, you know, lift their grandkids, you know, and then up to the professional athlete level. Um, So for my job, it is definitely an understanding anatomy and physiology, kind of the function biomechanics of the body. I always say when, you know, it's just like you bring your car to the mechanic, we are the the body mechanic in terms of watching somebody walk or, you know, kind of troubleshoot when they present for their initial evaluation. Like why are they having the pain pattern that they're having? You know, it's easy when somebody's had a surgery, let's say rotator cuff repair, and you're like, oh, okay, well, we know what we need to do there, right? But when somebody has that nondescript kind of no rigid mechanism of injury, just kind of this gradual onset of pain, you're really trying to problem solve what isn't working well in the system. So I took a... a, a, a adaptive leadership program. And one of the things the tenants of that program was your, your system is designed to give you the results that you're getting. So that transfers into my job when somebody comes in, and they're limping, and they have back pain, it may be because their big toe doesn't flex enough, right? Because now they're limping, and they're doing a different strategy up top, we're going to treat the back pain, but really the cause might be the toe mobility, right? So we've got to figure that out and not just treat those symptoms.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking about a personal injury I have in my hip. And somebody thought it was my left toe which we can talk about offline but it's interesting so how often are you like are you getting challenged by other medical professionals like or is it are you the the boss you know when you say this is what i think the issue is do you find yourself well hey my my doctor said this or, or do you feel like you're the authority uh on these issues
0: I think physical therapists are starting to become more of an uh, awareness over the first step. Like we get a lot of patients now that haven't seen physicians prior to coming in to see us. Direct access uh, has been uh, kind of opened up in a lot of insurance plans for that, which is great to not to miss the step of having to go for somebody to say, yeah, you have knee pain, go and see physical therapy, right? And it it works both ways. We would want to refer somebody back if it was something out of our scope. So to have that differential diagnosis skill set is super important. Um, I think I've been doing it for so long here in Isquad, this is my 25th year now, that I've got a pretty good relationship with physicians where they just kind of say, you know, Reed's going to figure that out, right? And so they have that trust in in that evaluative process that I put people under when they first come in. Um, but there are times where I might disagree with a physician's diagnosis. Then it's a phone call or a you know a conversation via a fax note with the, you know, my my evaluation and the critical pieces of that uh, data to say, hey, this isn't really adding up to X, whatever the diagnosis was, but I think I'm going to go down this road and see what we can do. And physicians for the most part really trust us. You know, I think they get 15 minutes with their patients sometimes. We're spending a full hour doing a full evaluation, watching people walk. You know, there's a lot of times folks go back to their doctor, say it's after foot surgery and the surgeon doesn't actually walk watch the patient walk. So you know, yeah, the surgery may be healing great, but functionally that person may not be putting that joint through the right paces. So I think we do get a lot of trust. Um, I think we have to trust ourselves too. Like you know, there's cluster signs and symptoms that we follow when it comes to an algorithm, how to evaluate somebody. Um, and again, having the more data points, you know, we come out of school and we have entry-level skills, right? We're we're safe with patients. We know how to not cause harm. But when you see more and more people with the same presentations and start understanding either bell curves of presentations or sharp linear lines of this is what this looks like, right? And not to always say that this is the one thing and again back to the psychology part is whenever you're doing with dealing with a human system, everybody's different. You know, I can line five patients up that come in with plantar fasciitis as a diagnosis. I'm gonna treat every one of those people a little bit differently, right? They may have different needs. It could be a really rigid foot that's causing that, or it could be a really flexible foot that's causing that. And I've got to figure out the, the bottom line of where the, the root is,
1: right? I love it. Um yeah, one of my questions is I I want to get more into to the the career, but what makes you good at what you do? Like, you know, maybe in lending people come to me because two or three reasons. What is it about Reed? You think that helps bring in the the referrals and, you know, we're all unique. We all have, you know, our own skill sets, our own, you know, genuine, like what we're better at than other people in your industry. What makes you who you are?
0: It's always hard to toot your own horn, right? But I think the, the classic theme from patients when they've been elsewhere or they get sent into me because they're failing at their current location, uh, number one, they feel like I put them through the most thorough eval that they've ever been uh, under, that I first spend a lot of time listening. To what they have to say and what they're experiencing and then i do a really thorough like when somebody comes in to see me say for orthotics i always joke i'm going to get to your foot at some point but i'm starting from the low back down and we're going to put them through a complete biomechanical evaluation from that whole lower chain to see what you know if there's a hip restriction that it may be that orthotics aren't the answer right so i think they feel like they really are heard they're really seen and there's this thoroughness to what we the time that we spend together to put together a big plan and then my, i think my my second tenant that i really uh, um, I feel proud of is, is my ability to educate people. And I mean, I'm full of analogies, right? If somebody's more of a technical person, I'm going to use technical analogies. if somebody's more artistic, let's use artistic analogies, right? There's so many different ways for patients to understand if if they know why I'm asking them to do a certain exercise, they're much more willing to do it and be compliant if they understand the why, right? Simon said, start with your why. And I think patient education is just the root to that.
1: Yeah, I, I remember when I blew out my ACL, and I worked with um, John over mm-hmm. Zanis, I believe, yep. he's gone, but um, he's not competitive. So go to read. He's, he's, he's moved <laughs> yeah. away. Um, but I was very vulnerable, you know, like I was, I was scared in a way I was nervous about what the future was going to be. <clears throat> that must be like kind of where psychology kicks in. And you, you know, You have to kind of reach these patients where they are Mm -hmm. and kind of get them through you know um but i remember i I struggled a lot and pt was hard for me um but i got through it and uh you might i mean it's what i guess i'm getting at is this is if you're thinking and watching reed right now and you're thinking about this it's more than just you know black and white working on the body it's an emotional uh connection that you need to be able to Establish with your patients, I would assume. One hundred percent.
0: If if they don't trust you, you know, first of all, to to be their advocate and to have their best interests in mind, right? Like, I'll run over with a patient uh, a visit if we're really struggling on something, or you know, there's just this piece that I know you can get if you just do two more reps. Like, I'm not like, oh, my next patient's here, I'm gonna bounce out, right? Like, every person that comes in here that has my time for 45 minutes for follow-ups, it, it's it's valuable and it's attuned care, right? And I think you know the emotion part of it, it's. I don't think I've, in all the 25 years I've practiced, I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone say after a total knee replacement. And I think 99% of my patients after total knees, at some point, usually within the first two weeks, there will be tears in PT, not because they're in pain, but because there's this emotional, like I didn't realize what I was signing up for. You know, their first two weeks are the hardest and they don't see themselves out of that fog to, to understand this is going to get better right and that it's tough and it's unrelenting in those first two weeks and i don't man woman it doesn't matter across the demographic demographic of age athlete non-athlete you know prior trauma to the knee or not it's there's going to be some tears and you know i'm expecting it at this point not that i'm trying to cause it by any means but when it comes out i feel like there's this big release and we get to move forward from it right but you know everyone's like i'm sorry i'm sorry well no i mean the apology this is part of the rehab process, right?
1: Yeah.
0: I always say if I were to write a book, it'd be called not just physical therapy, because I think sometimes you're there just to listen. And it might be something that's going on in their, you know, kids lives or, you know, marital problems or whatnot. But you're there to listen. As trauma's released from the body, so is emotion, and they come together, right? And the fear you just you don't know, I know what's going to happen to that person in, in three months, right? I know the end game where we're going to get but they don't see it in those first two weeks. So there is a big vulnerability.
1: Yeah, no, it's powerful. I mean, it's, It's, yeah, it's just more than, Hey, let's get you back. It's kind of the whole trauma, you know, atrophy is such an interesting thing to go through. And it's almost, I think you meant made a comment about analogies or metaphors you use or something Mm -hmm. a lot in your practice, but after, you know, like when you, you see like your leg shrink, Mm -hmm. you know, and then get built back up. That's kind of like the soul or the heart not to get too deep, but anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, so 25 years, um, what has surprised you i mean i know you're very intelligent and you, you knew what you're getting yourself into but what 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 didn't you expect what what threw you if anything is there one or two things you're like man i didn't see this coming hmm.
0: you know i think from a from a practice standpoint i would say yeah, insurance can be a bit of a, a challenge right you know the insurance companies are charging subscribers more paying providers less right so you know my costs continue to increase with you know salary increases rent increases and your reimbursement rate is not necessarily equitable on that right so that's been an interesting thing I think you know we are in a kind of a unique bubble here in the Pacific Northwest when it comes to insurance restrictions there are definitely pockets of the country that are have it much worse than we do here Um, but I it it sometimes can be a battle right when an insurance company gives me six visits at a time for somebody who's a post-op athlete that's not going to be done in six weeks and you have to continue to work on getting more and more authors it just you're spending so much time grinding wheels that you shouldn't have to grind that it can be really frustrating right and I think I can speak for anybody in any industry but COVID certainly was not something on anybody's radar right and managing through that as an essential service right we had people that would definitely have declined if we weren't available for care and putting yourself in that position where we're going to put ourselves in the front lines, right? We're going to protect ourselves as best we can. We're going to do the things in the clinic that we can to to keep everybody safe. Um, and I think it was nicer to be a bit of a, a smaller practice. You know, we didn't have 50 people in the room together, right? But uh, you know, that was a challenge to figure out how to do it the right way. As everybody, you know, there was no manual that was you know available. We were writing it as we were going along, but uh, you know, that was a biggie in terms of the business side of things.
1: Yeah, let me just make sure I, I'm following you, but I really want to make sure is it the aligning of the recipe of success with what an insurance carrier is willing to, to do is that, is that kind of the core, like, you know, I, my patient needs 20 visits for the next four months. They're only going to reimburse him or her for half of that. Is that the issue that you're dealing with?
0: Yeah. I think, you know, some companies have gone to a third party um, that looks at the chart notes and looks at, you know, really they're looking at a, um, Ah, uh, self-report uh, functional scale to say whether or not somebody should have more visits. And when you're working, let's say I currently have an athlete who has got some pretty good Patar tendinitis. Basketball player in college, and you know we're trying really hard to work on his. Uh, his mobility in his ankle is really the the driver of his patellar tendinitis. He he can't squat deep enough when he goes to do a jump. You know he's uh, he's loading up his patellar tendon way too much because the ankle doesn't dorsiflex. So I've got to work on that to get his patellar tendon down. Right. So it's these steps that have to happen. It's not just isolated patellar tendinitis. It's these other things that have to happen for that patellar to be under less load. And I can't always do that in six visits. Right. So then they say no. So you do a peer to peer review and you think that you've got the person on the other end of the phone is saying, yeah, I totally appreciate this read. I see where you're going. You know, I really think this is good. And then you don't get what you thought you were going to get from that phone call either. And so you're trying to be an advocate for the patient, but it's taking so much more time away from actually treating patients that there's this, you know, negative result because, you know, we need to stay productive to keep the money coming in the door. Right. So, you know, you take a patient visit slot and do a phone call to try to get more visits for somebody. It's just a net zero you know, and I'll do it all the time because I think patients need that, that care, you know, and our job too, is to get patients to be independent. So there is this balance. And I think people have probably over abused the, uh, let's just see you for 18 months, right? Well, that's not good either. I mean, our job is to get people to be independent once they can do the things in the gym, but you know, our hands-on skill set, if that's still valuable for that patient, I think we should be able to treat them. So we're just kind of working harder to get less dollars really, sadly, when it comes to the insurance reimbursement side of things, but
1: So I know it varies, you know, you have a variety of types of clients, but is the relationship, you know, like in my world, I might do a loan for somebody and never see them again, right? Or I might help them 10 times in five years, who knows? Um, In your world, is it a, I mean, if you were to average it out, is it a six month relationship you have with somebody and maybe they never come back or, you know, it's not a, it's probably not every year, right? Because eventually the benefits run out. How long is the relationship? Like how long is a, what is program the right trace? Yeah. Kind of, I think, you know,
0: our, our treatment plans
1: for, for most folks are
0: going to probably run four to six weeks for just, you know, non-trauma, non-surgical stuff. You know, surgeries, we might see somebody for a good three to four months, you know, because there's some protocols, let's say again, rotator cuff repair, you don't do any strengthening until eight weeks into the, the series of, of treatment right you're working on range of motion in the beginning and there's this segmental kind of recipe book for how we get people going uh forward so you can't do things that they, they need to do until a certain time frame right so i would say on average i probably see people between that kind of six to eight weeks and then there's probably that three month mark there's kind of those two um kind of averages. And, you know, I I might see some patients multiple times a year, you know, and people start to break down, you know, one joint goes and another joint might go and you're seeing people for, you know, bilateral total knee replacements, maybe on the polar ends of a calendar year. Um, Or, you know, they might cycle through again a year or two later, right? So there are some definitely that you'll see and you just, you wonder how they are because you just don't ever see them again. And that's great. And I always say my job is to get you to fire me right? I want you to be done with what I'm doing for you so that you can do this and you're doing what you need to do on your own. Um, And then there's just people that come back and we joke, it's okay if you come back as long as it's for something different, right? You want to get that primary diagnosis controlled and and healed, whatever that means, right? Um, At least functional for them to go back to doing what they want to do. And then, you know, when people start to trust you, this is, you know, networking is so important to, you'll see the same people or family members or friends of family. Right now, I think I have six members of one family all on my schedule for multiple different reasons, right? But you got to go and see Reed is kind of the, the topic at their dinner table.
1: Right. So, yeah, I bumped into a, I told you a buddy of mine had a ski accident and he you're you're helping him. So, yep. um, yeah. So if you're listening to Reed and you're thinking, OK, this this sounds pretty cool. I, I've always thought this is what I want to do. You my assumption is you could be really, really good at what you do. But if you don't have the at bats or the referral networks or the 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 people coming in, you're going to starve. So, I guess the question I have, is it just really a matter of getting really good at what you do, having happy clients talking about you? Are you working with specific types of doctors? Like, what's the recipe for success for spreading the good, good word, a read? Like, how do you create this referral network that doesn't end?
0: Yeah, I think it, it, I think it does start with our physicians. I think if you've got a a good relationship or physicians see when they send patients to you, the outcomes are always good. Patients are always happy, you know, I think, and that has to both happen, right? You can have a great outcome, but the patient's like, yeah, it was terrible to be there, right? But, you know, you want to create this environment where patients want to be here. And sometimes it's actually hard for me to kick people out when they're done because they're like, well, no, i I need to keep coming twice a week. It's like, well, that's fun, but you know, I can't keep charging your insurance company for that, right? So when patients go back to their physicians and say, "I had such a great time there," you know, the atmosphere is great. Look at what I can do with my shoulder, and they kind of brag about their response. That's that's golden, right? Um, I do think, you know, social media is always great. I think Nextdoor has created a whole different host of ways for people to come and see you. You know, there's plenty of people going on. Hey, I've got to have a shoulder rehab. Where should I go? And, you know, I've had plenty of patients say, "Well, I found you on Nextdoor because everybody kept saying, you know, Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix. Um, and then you just start have to, I think you have to be a part of your community, right? Like we're, we still live in small communities, even though they're big cities, uh, you know, but Issaquah still has such a small town feel to me and it expands out to Snoqualmie and to North Bend and, you know, Fall City. And if you have that kind of reputation within the community, I think that's where you start to just get people to feed in to, you know, I've always wanted people when they think physical therapy, I want them to think read, Right. And yeah. of course so, I wanted to thank Phoenix because I think the staff that I have here is just as as valuable as I am in terms of the quality of care and the level of attunement that we provide at services. They're going to get that whether they see me or my colleagues.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, we were kind of discussing it earlier before I hit record. But you know, when i, I I've had a lot of guests on the, my podcast who are, um you know, like I have an artist who's very creative, and he's also a businessman where he, he has to go out and, I mean, get involved with the PL and recruiting and all that. So for you, if you're watching Reed, Reed is, Reed, you, you practice, you, you, you're like working with people, but you also run the business. So how does that work? Do you find yourself like um, too much business stuff going on and not enough? I mean, how do you, how, that dance, how do you balance it?
0: how <laughs> oh, the work-life balance <laughs> that
1: that's well, the yeah. well not the, not it's the work work balance i guess well, what i'm saying is the 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 the, the dance between running phoenix oh. and then when you get a practice because you have to hire recruit you mm-hmm. probably have to fire you probably have to run a PNL. so then you know those are different skill sets uh than pt school right Sure.
0: Yeah. I don't think they teach us enough in PT school to be private practice owners, although I think that's what what our profession would like us to do. So there's a missing piece there. I did have the benefit of, like I said, I worked for two nationwide companies as a clinic director. So I did go to Dallas with one company for their business, their management training. And then I went to Memphis for another um, management training session with the other company and then running with ProLiance, you know, they gave me a lot of freedom there in terms of, you know, I had somebody doing the taxes and some of the central business type stuff, but I was really running that show in terms of, again, hiring and, you know, staffing and planning expansions. And so you started to learn with the benefit of having a little bit of a cushion, right, of some corporations underneath you. So I think it's not wise, I would say, <clears throat> for a new grad to come out and want to start their own practice because your first years in the practice really have to be learning how to be a therapist right so i you know and i can treat people and and i'm not ever afraid of a diagnosis or i don't have to do a lot of research when it comes to and i still do there's things that come up that i don't know and, you know no i don't think i'm ever going to know everything in this in this profession so but i don't have to do as much of that as i did when i was you know a first year uh, therapist um but it is sometimes hard so i do I, I treat 40 hours a week and so this is where it comes into the work life balance because my business side oftentimes bleeds into my personal life right it's I'm doing it after hours I might skip the gym and do it uh, a lunchtime you know meeting for a different commitment or you know the weekends I'm trying to do QuickBooks or you know whatever the case may be um, I've learned to try to balance it I'd love to get to a point where I'm doing 30 hours of clinical care and maybe that extra 10 can really be focused on the business. Um, I have an amazing office manager who takes over a lot of the things that I I could do but I have other things to do right. Um, but it is hard to balance it sometimes. You know, I think a lot of administrators or practice directors are maybe treating 50-50 or you know seventy-thirty. Um, and I think, as you know, again, I said I opened this eight years ago. I'm getting to the point now where things are really kind of pretty smooth and stable, so I can kind of pull back a little bit from the treatment side. Uh, if only I just didn't have an overfull schedule of patients that wanted to see me. That's the other piece to it. So,
1: Do you remember the the moment where you decided. You were practicing PT person, and then you decided to run your own show. Was there? What, what do you remember? Why you decided to do that? Was it like, hey, I think I can do this better, or what happened?
0: Well, I think it, it, I essentially was doing that um, when I was at Pro Alliance, and it was a phone call I had with a colleague of mine, and he was like, "Why would you keep working for somebody else? You're doing all the work, and you're getting, you know, somebody else is getting paid for that, right? Why won't you do that for yourself?" And I'm like. Hmm okay. So, you know, I've started looking into it and what could this look like? And, you know, and it's not easy when you're starting off, even when you're, you know, as seasoned in an area as you are, like, you know, but it was, it, we grew every single year and it just continued to do well. And I, I feel really proud of what we've accomplished here and kind of what we built. Uh, again, pre COVID numbers are back, which feels amazing. Um, But it's not easy. You know, the the business side is, you know, again, there's so many nuances with insurance companies, you know, staff, you know, issues, salaries that, you know, the the things that you have to manage and stay on top of liability insurance, like all the taxes, you know, there's so many things that you have to do that you know once you start doing it more and more you get into the routine of you know what needs to be done monthly what needs to be done quarterly what needs to be done weekly right processing payroll something i do every single wednesday right i just take a little time away and you know everybody gets paid but it seems like it's behind the scenes right but there's a lot of work on the business side that does have to be done so
1: yeah you know i talk a lot um uh, with my guests about ai and mm-hmm. how it's changing things and in your profession you know i would think you're safe AI is never going to replace the human touch, Uh, but you know it is interesting like the question is what can hurt your industry and the pandemic like when you actually physically can't come in and see people so Mm -hmm. remotely are you able to accomplish the same types of things via zoom I mean, or do you have to be there, I mean I would think you have to be there physically touching the person.
0: You know, we did some telehealth uh during COVID. Of course, there were just times where people didn't want to come in. And uh, you know, when you talk to those folks that did a lot of telehealth, like, how was it? And they're like, it was garbage, right? And it wasn't that the service was garbage, but it was our bread and butter are manual therapy techniques, right? People come in not just to do exercises, but to have you know their system change in some way, whether it's joint mobilization or some soft tissue work or even just some simple cueing of an exercise, right? Super hard to evaluate somebody's range of motion restrictions when you're looking at a computer screen, right? And not everybody had a great setup to do that. You know, I did one evaluation for a, a college kiddo, and you know, he's got his phone on the floor. I'm trying to look at his ankle mobility. You know, I'm like, well. And then you only get a snapshot. You don't get to see what the rest of the system is doing while the ankle's moving, right? So it's very limiting, I think. It was great to have it as an option so we could continue patient's care that just simply couldn't come in. But I think that was a big restriction. Um, And like you say, like AI is not going to take away the human touch part of it, right? Um, I think bigger threats to us are bigger corporations that get better insurance rates. And then they kind of just scarf up the, the small practice, right? Like for me, when when I have an insurance company contract come up, they just tell me what the new rates are. I don't have any negotiating power. You know, if they say, well, if you don't like the rates that we're giving you, then we'll just drop you off the network. And I'm a small peanut compared to, you know, if you're taking away Virginia Mason, let's say, they have a much bigger voice at that contracting table. So I think from, from a private practice standpoint, that's probably my biggest threat and trying to stay independent and, and valuable.
1: So do you feel the industry or what you do is safe for a while? If so, if someone's 25 thinking about getting it, maybe they're 27, they just came out of getting their masters. is, Is it a safe road to go down or do you feel like there's a little bit of trouble I do American. think we we'll
0: always have job security and the the setting may change based on, you know, reimbursements rates. But I think, you know, people are still going to be active, people are still going to get hurt, you know, people still need to have care, and that's not going to change. I mean, even just the population growth here in, in Issaquah, like it's hard to find a primary care Physician, if you don't already have one, right? There's networks are bogging up with the number of people that are trying to use services. So I do think we have some value and we'll always have that kind of job security. And again, just may look different in terms of I'm hopeful the private practice can kind of swing back. It's usually a pendulum shift. You know, we used to have a lot of uh, like HealthSouth used to be a big presence here in the Pacific Northwest, Uh, physiotherapy associates, some of the bigger nationwide companies. Uh, And that's kind of gone by the wayside for a while. Now we're kind of seeing some of that come back with some of these bigger companies taking over some of the smaller practices again.
1: Yeah, um, I am curious, and I think other people watching, what is your week like or your month or your day like, you know, and maybe you, you, you can even comment on, it's probably different if you're just a practicing mm-hmm. physical therapist, versus what you are is you run a business. So you, there's a lot of hats you wear. Yeah. But what's it like? I mean, are, are you able to shut it off at 5pm and go hang out with friends and family? Or are you always on call?
0: I wouldn't say I'm always on call, I do, you know, I've been to my um, if, if patients have access to me after hours, it's because I've given them that access, and it's important and valuable for them to have a resource. Um, so there are some people that might, you know, shoot a text or an email after hours that I, you know, may respond, then or maybe the next business day, um, you know, we are a pretty regimented scheduled profession. So uh, I would say we're kind of one step below retail. So oftentimes, our clinics are from seven to six. So we get 7 a.m. patients. Sometimes I'll throw a 6 a.m. patient in there if they can't find another time around their work schedule. Um, and then we're here with our last patient until five. So there's some long days to kind of get people before and after work. Not everybody has the luxury of taking time off for an hour in the middle of a day, right? So you get that kind of before work, after work, kind of rush, certainly after school rush. During the school year, after 3.30, we get busy with the high school kids. Um, and then, you know, the, we were full midday with the people who are retired or maybe working from home. That was a big benefit to COVID is that people could come anytime right? But it is a rigid uh, schedule. Like, so if I have patients from seven to six, like every 45 minutes, I've got somebody new who's asking for my time. And so I have to stay on track with that, try to get my paperwork done for that session, and then move on to the next person, right? So there are times where paperwork might bleed into personal time, because you don't always have a chance to type and and do your thing. Um, But, you know, it's possible to work a complete day. But once you're done, you're done, for the most part, unless you've got Got charts to do, um, but it isn't like we have any emergency call or that sort of thing. So that's kind of a nice, a nice way to kind of just compartmentalize the day.
1: So as the owner and the boss, do you have to be first in, first out, or can you come? You know, if you have something going on, can you show up at noon?
0: Uh, I rarely do that. Although, you know, if I have a, a meeting or something, I've served on a board for a nonprofit, so there will be times where I might be on a board retreat, or you know, I have my. Board meeting in a a time that conflicts with patient care. So, you know, I have the flexibility to block myself off. And so do my staff. If somebody has, you know, a dentist appointment, and, you know, I have one staff member who works 410. So he has a full day off where he could do all that stuff and it doesn't always land there. Another therapist who does three long days and two short days to kind of balance that out. Um, And that's, I think, the nice thing about the profession is that even if you wanted to work 20 hours a week, you could find a way to make it work so that you're available for your patient load. And they wouldn't know that you're not here at five if they never need you at five, right? You just would never get a patient on your schedule that needs a five o'clock appointment. So there's some flexibility to it. Um, But I try to model what I'm asking my staff to do. Like I'm in the front lines with them. You know, I'm here at seven, just before seven every day, right? And, you know, my long days, I might leave early on. I have two shorter days that I do some administrative stuff from home, but I also might be here the whole day. I hear you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're talking about your patients and I'm curious about, you know, you work with athletes, you work high school, you work with elderly, you work with all of the above. Is it normal to be a generalist or like I know Kathy, a mutual friend of ours works, I think, with older people, right? And she'll travel to them. Is this is this something that typically people uh, figure out along the way and then they just kind of key on a certain demographic or is it smarter and safer to kind of be able to deal with all of the above?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think most people will tend to specialize and and in specialty, so mine again is orthopedics, right? So I've seen as young as four, and as old as 94. So anybody in that gamut that shows up orthopedically, we don't see a lot of uh, four year olds often, to be fair, they were favors, because <clears throat> there's pediatric therapy as well, which tends to be more of um there's definitely orthopedics within pediatrics. So there's also a lot of neurologic issues uh, in, in pediatric care. And so, and certainly with adults too, someone might specialize in say post-stroke rehab or spinal cord injury um, or, you know, wound care. Uh, there's a lot of different specialty arms amongst PT. Um, so mine just happens to be one that encompasses a lot of age demographics.
1: <coughs> Excuse Still me. all kind of the same. Um, yeah. Is that, is that get figured out in school? Like do people just gravitate or is it, Post-school, they start working and then they kind of just naturally, you know, find what they like.
0: I think you'll see both. I think um, I went into PT school thinking I was going to come out doing spinal cord injury and I just was so... uh enamored with orthopedics and working in orthopedics when I was in school that I knew that's where I wanted to be. Uh, but I think, you know, when you come out, you may not have that. We're exposed to a lot through our internships and clinical rotations, uh, but you may not know what you have for a passion. So there are people who just end up traveling and yeah. going to different places and trying different things to see what really sticks and fits. So, and then there's other people just stay as a generalist and just fill in where they need to. Um, but I think I most people specialize.
1: So what would you say, Reed, like at the end of the day, what is it that you love about what you do?
0: I think first and foremost, it's the impact I can make in somebody's life to, to better their quality, right? So, you know, again, I, we talk about the, the logo and there's a rough edge and a smooth edge. And our, our mindset is that you're never going to leave the same way that you came in. There's something that's going to happen here that we're going to make life a little bit better or you're going to move a little bit better. You're going to have a little less pain, whatever it might be. And, you know, when you have somebody come in that says, you know, all I really want to do is hike and i can't hike and that's where the emotion comes in right the loss of and then you do things to create a different system that now is when they can hike again and the joy that happens for that patient like i just had a patient reach out with a text saying i just hiked Poo, Poo point that was the first time she had hiked in i think three or four years because she has this very long history of uh, her body just starting to fight back on itself and and it's gone through a lot of different surgeries to get to the point where now she can hike again and just the joy and the message like it was as if i was the one experiencing that right and you get this attachment to people that just is um it's it's compassion right it's it's that that passion for compassionate care to that patient to get back to know what they do and and to be able to be a part of that i think is just invaluable right and if you have a skill set or knowledge base that can help somebody do that it's that's the joy for me
1: yeah i mean like we talked about it a little earlier it's okay so from afar you're fixing a situation and it might not be the best way to phrase it, but you're actually getting let into their life and like the idea of somebody being able to do something that they love to do that they never thought they could do again. That's powerful. Yep. And so if you're watching, you know, that's the type of industry that PT might, it might give you a glimpse or a, 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 a I don't know what the word is, exposure into some, you know, really changing people's lives and it's, that's pretty cool um as we wind down if we could reverse and go back in time and university of puget sound you're coming out i'm guessing 27 26 25 years old i don't know 28 mm-hmm. would you do knowing what you know you know would you do anything different would you have gone right into private practice or do you think the route you went is how you do it again
0: I don't think I would change anything. I, in terms of the, my career in PT, I really feel like um, the progression that I experienced and and learning from different organizations and different uh, people and mentors and you know a lot of that was invaluable to be able to get to the point where I am now. And you know I'm kind of a achievement success based person. And I knew that I wanted to, Whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to try to be the best at that I can. And part of that is reputation. But part of that is just feeling that you've done everything that you can for a patient. When I was in PT school, I worked for a a clinic down in in Puyallup. And uh, the owner of the clinic uh, and my mentor at the time was like, oh, when I graduated from college, I was the best PT on the planet. And I thought, that's an ego, right? But what he qualified it with, and it's because I did everything I knew to do. He goes, do I know more today? Of course." But if I did some if I had a patient I didn't do things that I knew I could do to get him better that's a bad pt right so you just give all you have to your patients right and and get to the point where you said I did what I could right and sometimes you're successful and not everything can be fixed right but I don't think I'd go back and change how I got here because I think every experience I had formed me to be exactly where I am today
1: okay I love it um and i get that response a lot when i ask that question one thing i I wanted to ask earlier before i forget and not to get specific with in terms of what reed makes but compensation the the lifestyle the making money part of it is that is that a stressful situation i mean can you scale that or is it just like you know in my business of uh helping people with residential mortgage loans you know i don't do a loan i don't get paid in your world is it a, how does that work?
0: Well, in terms of uh, reimbursement, of course, from the insurance companies, and again, that's where it's changed. But, um, you know, as a staff therapist, I think our salaries are are very competitive. And I think, you know, there's certainly more than what I made when I came out of school, right? There's been a, a, an expansion of, of salaries commensurate with, uh, you know, inflation and things, right? Sure. But I think you make a pretty comfortable living. I think as a business owner, that's where, you know, you always eat last, right? Like,
1: Mm -hmm. you know,
0: paying everybody else first. I work hard to make sure everybody's got their paycheck at the end of the the two-week period. And then, you know, what's left is what's left. And there are times where that can be stressful. And there's times where you feel like things are going going really well, right? And, you know, you kind of ride the waves and you kind of look ahead at, at, you know, if the volume tends to decrease, what do we need to do to go out and market ourselves or, you know, hit the network that we know, you know, maybe a little shy if the surgeon sends us five patients a month and we're only getting two. Let's figure out why right so there are things you can do to control it right, you know, and as a business owner, it just it is what it is I used to joke that I a lot of pto before and now I just get to. Yeah, right, it's not paid but yeah.
1: I hear you. Is there any kind of, I you know, I'm fascinated by the careers that have an annuity. Income where you know you build a book of business, you get paid on it. Like financial services, commercial insurance, you know, I, I get paid per deal. So if I stop doing deals, I don't get paid. Is there any kind of annuity like in a, like? It's not about the money. I'm just it's about the compensation. Like, could you ever create a program? Like, do physical therapists ever create like on demand content that gets licensed? Like, is there other ways to make a living? As a PT, other than just seeing patients. Sure.
0: I, I think we are seeing more of uh, you know social influencers that are PTs and putting, you know, a lot of content on Instagram, you know, I'm sure making a side hustle there. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, you can do that for sure. I think there are, you know, different programs have been written by PTs. The, you know, platform that we use for documentation was started by PT, um, which is now the you know, most commonly used in the country. And I'm sure she's doing quite well with that. Right. So there are other, you know, niches. And I think, you know, that's the the next, I think, step is where does AI fit? Right, where is it in documentation is it in exercise prescription is it in patient interactions there's some space for some growth and and probably some revenue to be made in development for that.
1: yeah I was just thinking about you know introvert extrovert like maybe somebody that's fascinated with the body and and what you do, but maybe they're just shy and they don't really enjoy working with people and they get you know it's something they avoid i'm just wondering if the different types of personalities could find a life in the world of physical therapy um if they're not really good like one-on-one with people yeah
0: there's always research right there's Mm -hmm. You can be in the research lab doing some work with uh, with movement biomechanical uh, research. I think you know another kind of offshoot uh, biomechanical engineering would have been a, a thing to think about too in terms of PT versus PT for me. But kind of developing new things for the body to be used, whether it's surgical or you know again equipment, adaptive equipment. You know, there's I think so many different ways for technology and development to be uh, in the PT world and not just treatment. Right, treatment is one pillar for sure.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Um... I don't know if this is maybe a bit of a stretch, but years ago, a friend of mine who had down, I I worked with him at my high school and his dad owned a company where they did ski equipment for people who couldn't um, walk. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of thinking in my mind, it's like, okay, you're trying, when I listening to you read, I'm thinking, okay, it's just way more than just helping somebody with a sore muscle or whatever, you're changing their life. You're getting them back to where they were and, like it's much more than the body, right? It's the soul, and it's the happiness. And what he did is, you know he he was able to create a a ski that allowed people to go back on the slopes, and they probably never thought they could ski again. Right. and so seems like there's a lot of angles or directions you could go in
0: absolutely. that adaptive equipment is so mm. critical. and as you because know, like I said, not everything is fixable. Somebody may come out with you know a real functional deficit uh, and we've got to figure out a way to do things differently so that they can continue to function the way that they want to right yeah There's so many great examples about people who that just exceed expectations with maybe adaptive piece of equipment or not maybe just the way that they choose to use their system right yeah. so
1: I agree um so okay so if PT was off the board you couldn't do it you lost your license. I'm kidding, but just something. Is there a dream job? And I asked this question of all my guests. Is there something that you would love to do if, you know, you won the lotto and money wasn't an issue? Like what would Reed, what's Reed's dream job?
0: Uh, Well, one of two things. I think, you know, orthopedic surgery has always fascinated me in terms of the step before people get to me, right? I think uh, that would take a lot of work to go back to do that. But I do think developing, you know, again, the biomechanical engineering has always really spoke to me as well, as far as looking at the way the system works, figuring out how to do things differently, and then just bettering the equipment that we have available to people that need that adaptive equipment, right? The, the, And again, it's not even just like braces or supports or skis, but it's, you know, we used to treat ACL patients where they couldn't move their knee for six weeks because the fixation techniques of that that new ligament, that graft that they put in there was terrible. And then somebody came up with this great little screw that allowed us to start moving that knee at at day one, which completely changed the rehab protocol, right? They didn't come out stiff. They didn't hate their therapist Was at six weeks, they're stiff and they don't like people moving them around, right? So the fact that they just did a different screw for a fixation technique of a graft that could completely change that patient's experience, I think is incredible,
1: right? That's that's amazing. So are you referring to like patella hamstring or cadaver and then now the screw is what changed everything
0: with the hamstring screw. Yeah, that that really kind of changed because they would kind of put the ligament in there and just hope for the best and the bone would kind of heal around it. Right. Well, so you didn't want to bend the knee uh, to that graft out. And now it's fixated from day one. We can start bending. In fact, we normally see people on the second day after surgery. So, wow. Yeah,
1: that is cool. Um, anything uh, we're going to wind this down. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to get in behind the curtains to really understand the life. A, a, your life, your career. Is there anything I didn't ask, or anything you want to mention to the audience before we say goodbye?
0: Um, I think you know anybody who's uh, looking at this profession as a as an option. I think um, you've got to have good people skills. You've got to have good communication skills. I think you've got to have the good ability to network yourself in a way that, you know, you're out there marketing, whether it's your work talking for you or you're out there knocking on doors, right? To, to build up that business. Again, that's if you're kind of in that private practice and want to build your own. Um, but there are many ways to kind of get into the profession and learn all of that, right? Does it not, the uh, skill that you have to have from the very beginning, you have to have those people skills, right? That's imperative. Like you can't get somebody to trust you if you're not somebody who's trustworthy, right? So you've got to be able to communicate. You have to be able to have empathy. You've got to be able to say, you know, this is this person's first time coming in. I may have treated six of these before them, but this is their first experience. And separate yourself to just be able to show up individually for them. So
1: it's amazing how consistent the whole people skills uh, thing comes up with. Like even I had a a guest who writes um, film scores, music film scores for movies. And I thought this person could be an introvert, but but he talked about how the people skills. And it's just, it's interesting because I understand in your world how that would be important, but I I think there's probably a lot of people that think, you know, I'm good with the body, I don't really need to relate to people, but there are options out there, other people, people yeah. can go to. So I think it's the people, that's what's sticky. You know, that's what keeps people coming back to read, yep. in my opinion, so. Yep. um, Hey Reed, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much and uh i know everybody um, who's interested in this profession would benefit is there um if people are interested coming out of school as far as your company i mean what's the process as far as recruiting they find you online yeah
0: i'm on linkedin uh certainly we have a nice web presence uh so anybody just reach out i mean you never know i think that's you know people look on indeed for people that are hiring but sometimes you might just get a resume that says this one's too good to pass up you know, and somebody might be on the 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 path of just thinking about hiring, right? We're on that kind of cusp right now that yeah. we're probably ready to hire that next therapist. And, you know, if someone were to walk into my email inbox and I'm thinking about that at the right time, I think that's, you know, sometimes you just trust that.
1: Yeah, timing, time, right? timing, yeah. yeah. All right, well, thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dirk, this is, All this
1: is great. All right, take care. You too.